The message from God's Word is from 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. It's a story that you know if you've been paying attention at all in this uh, particular book. Saul, the king, is chasing David. He's still chasing David. David is being sanctified. He's being sanctified in his hardship. God is showing himself faithful. While men betray him and mistreat him, David is finding hope and courage in God. It's a long passage. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Please remain seated. But hear God's holy word, 1 Samuel 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about six hundred, arose and departed from Keilah. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding amongst us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, 
May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it has told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul said to his men, Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, and he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you once again. People who are much like David, not knowing our right from our left, not knowing which way to go, and we pray that you would give us help and wisdom and encouragement. Lord, that your word would go forth. I pray that you would help each one of us to to keep the meat and throw away the bones, that we would be blessed spiritually and prepare our hearts to receive the blessing of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen. It almost seems too repetitious to continue to talk about all of David's troubles. So many troubles, every chapter it seems, since Saul sent him out of the king's court. Every chapter seems to be filled with trouble. He had a lot of troubles. So we find in this chapter David and his fighting men, they've grown from 400 to 600. There are more people who are coming to David for help. And yet it's still not enough to deal with Saul's whole army. The government is seeking to destroy David. So much so that his own family, David, sent his parents to live in the kingdom of Moab so that they would be safe. But he hears in Kilah, maybe the, the eastern part of Judah, that the Philistines are robbing the threshing floors. So what does that mean? Well, you can imagine a threshing floor is a place where they would separate the wheat from the chaff and get all the goodness of the the harvest and store it away. So to rob the threshing floor, imagine all the work, if you've ever planted anything. They've planted the crops. They've, They've plowed before they planted, of course. They've spent time weeding and finally harvesting and now separating wheat from chaff. And then after all this work, after all these months, it's stolen by your enemy. It's all gone. Now what? Starvation. That's what. There's no food. 
David's heart is drawn to help these poor people. They're Israelites. They're his kin. But rather than just launching out on this rescue mission, he stops and he asks the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. Similarly, after he rescues the town, we read that Saul is going to come and get David and the people in this town are terrified. You remember Nob, the city of the priests, had just been completely wiped out. Everything destroyed. Men, women, children, ox, donkey, everything destroyed. So you can understand that the people of Kelah, when they see Saul coming, they're terrified he's going to do the same thing that he did to Nob if we help David. But David doesn't know what's going to happen. What does he do? He inquires of the Lord. He prays. He tells us, verse 6 tells us that Abiathar, the priest who fled to David after his whole family's murder, he was able to leave with the high priest's garment, the high priest's vestment here called the ephod. It had all the the jewels on the breastplate, if you remember, 12 different jewels for the 12 tribes. And in the top of it, there was, we don't know exactly what it is, but it's the the, um, umim, the urim and thumim, sorry, urim and thumim. They're Hebrew words. I don't know. Nobody really knows exactly what it is, a a stone or a piece of wood or metal. It was the way that God had ordained that the high priest could give direction from God to the king or the rulers or whoever was inquiring of God. People could ask questions of God and get answers. This process may sound strange to our Western ears, um, and it's, of course, derided by those who hate God's word. But the Urim and Thummim were established by God for just a time as this. They were the means by which, according to Exodus chapter 28, people could hear God's direction when they inquired of God by the high priest. The Urim and Thummim were really kind of an Old Testament means of grace, a means by which God directed his people. So to use the Urim and Thummim to go to the high priest in this way, to inquire of God, was an act of faith and worship, and that's what David is doing. He's stopping to pray. Well, today we don't have uh, Urim and Thummim, do we? But we do still have ways that God uses to communicate truth to us, to give us direction. They're very ordinary as well. The Word, the sacraments, prayer. They feel just as silly to the world, but to us they're precious. They're given and ordained by God to help us grow in our faith. And God uses each to cause us to trust and rest in our Redeemer. They are a means of grace in that way. They require the Holy Spirit's work, of course, to be effective. The preaching of the Word of God is the first example of a modern grace that God's given the church. Preaching is just God's Word being proclaimed to your own ears. And the Holy Spirit does the work to make you trust in Christ. The sacraments are also made effectual by the Holy Spirit to bring people a confidence in their their salvation, to build people up in holiness and comfort. Of course, they rely on the Word. Preaching is 
The preaching of the Word, the sacraments rely on the Word. They depend on the Scriptures. The Scripture speaks through the sacraments. As we partake of the Lord's Supper this evening, you'll see that it, it, it shows us the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ. They point us to a Redeemer. And they communicate to God's people the wonders of Christ. And in, in that way, they're an instrument of God's grace. It's more than a memorial. Something, something wonderful happens as the Holy Spirit confirms in our heart the promises of God. And finally, our prayers. Our prayers are also used by God to increase our faith, to confirm in our hearts the truth of God's word. So we don't have a, a Urim and a Thummim, and we don't have a high priest who carries around this breastplate, but we have something much better, a high priest in heaven, and he's left us with something better than Urim and Thummim. He's left us with his word. But I think the lesson, the application that we see from these first verses is that we should be like David and pray all the time. Even when we think something already makes sense and we already know the answer, stop and pray. Stop and ask God for wisdom. We trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and we don't lean on our own understanding. Even when we think we've got it figured out. We acknowledge God in all our ways and he directs our paths. When you have a big decision to make, how do you do it? Well, you stop and you pray. You seek the Lord. You find godly counsel. You talk to those men that you trust, those women that you trust, who are going to give you godly counsel. You seek the word. And if it's a moral decision, you do the morally right thing. If it's not a moral decision, if it's not a right or a wrong, then you make the best decision you can after all the prayer, all the study, all the research, all the counsel. You make a decision. But praying is the first step. We should be praying before we do anything, big or small. Before we do something quickly or before we do something in a year whether we're doing something important or it's a normal daily decision that you have to make. Stop. Pray. No one ever on their deathbed said, I, I really regret that I prayed way too much. Nobody says that. What do they say? I regret that I didn't spend more time in God's Word and I didn't spend more time in prayer and communion with my Father. Pray all the time. Every day. About everything. Like David. Our God is a God who answers the prayers of His children. He loves His children. He loves you. If you're His child, He loves you. He wants to hear you pray. I remember when my grandkids showed up and just made me remember my own children. What father, when your little child comes up to you saying, Daddy, just says, ah, I don't have time for you. Get away. No, when my grandchildren come up and say, Granddaddy, I'm all ears. Like, I'm... Full attention. Whether they want to show me their pretty dress or the funny face they're making, it doesn't matter. I'm right there with them. And I'm a wicked man listening to my grandchildren. Imagine how much more your Heavenly Father cannot wait to listen to His children's prayers. Pray. So why don't we pray? I think some people just think they're independent agents. 
Christians think that I just do whatever I want. Forgetting that you're a slave of Christ, you've been bought with a price. What slave actually ventures outside the house without talking to his master first? It's not good, it's presumptuous and disrespectful. But we think in our own pride that we can just do anything. We need to pray. I think the main reason for many people is we just don't really think it makes a difference. It just doesn't matter. We don't pray because it just is not critical for our lives because it, it's seen as unimportant. Or maybe we think that our normal, regular requests are the small things we pray for, the things that consume 90% of our days, just the regular daily life, is not important enough to pray about. God really doesn't care. Or maybe we think our prayers aren't good enough. I don't know how to pray right, so I probably just am not going to do it. Or maybe I'm just not worthy to pray to God. I can't come to God's throne. Doesn't he know how sinful I am? It all misses the point. You are that little toddler running up to Father. That's you. He will not turn you away. Pray to him. He delights in the prayers of his children. And we're to call him Father. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, the first thing he said is, Our Father. Not Yahweh. That's his name. But our Father. Pray to Yahweh as well, of course. But Jesus is teaching us something precious. Do you think God really despises the times that you try to talk to him? He doesn't. Do you think he despised David for asking him these questions? No. If you really think anything that you pray is unnoticed by God or unworthy of praying, you just don't understand the relationship yet. He delights over his children. He sings over his children, according to Zephaniah. He welcomes you into his presence because of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is groaning your requests according to the will of God when you pray. The Son of God is at the right hand of God interceding for you. The whole Godhead is inspiring your prayer and receiving your prayer and mediating Think of Jesus. He's a man in heaven. Jesus, the God-man. And yet in his divine nature, every detail of your life, he knows it. And he cares. Every detail. And even if there were 10 billion people on earth that were Christians and praying to him about every detail of their lives, that would be a small change. Easy. Even if there were 10 billion universes with 10 billion people in each one, Chump change. He can do it. He can handle everything you've got. Bring it. Bring him your prayers. Revelation 5 describes our prayers as incense coming up before the throne of God. In other words, it's a pleasing thing to pray to God, for God to receive your prayers. Have I beat that horse enough? Like David, we should ask the Father for everything. Pray about everything. When you pray, remember, you're coming to your Father, but you're also doing something amazing. It's like the old picture, although this is a very diminished view of what I'm getting at, but the old picture you probably remember of JFK working in the Oval Office and JFK Jr. underneath the desk. Have you seen that picture? 
And his dad delights to have his son there. It's the Oval Office. It's the place of power. And yet it's a precious thing. How much more our Heavenly Father delights to have you breaking into the throne room with your prayers. So pray with confidence and pray often in the name of Jesus. Well, for David, after saving the city of Keilah, it seems like these people turn on him. And you can kind of rationalize it. They're terrified. They're going to become like the city of Nob. They're going to be completely wiped out. And then what? Is this David guy really worth it? But from David's perspective, he just stuck his neck out for these people, these Israelites whose, whose whole livelihood had been destroyed or stolen by the Philistines, their enemies. And yet it seems in this post-fallen world that truly no good deed seems to go unpunished, at least for David. That's the second thing I want you to consider with me. How this makes any sense at all. How David's life is making sense. It doesn't make sense. Can you imagine how he must feel? They're in Keilah. They're boxed in. He asks God, are they going to protect me? No. Is Saul going to come and get me? Yes. So he runs off, feeling betrayed, probably by their ingratitude and maybe even by God. And where did they go? Verse 13. They went wherever they could go. It seems like they have no idea where they're going. They're running. He ends up in the wilderness of Ziph. This is in the land of Judah. And then even these people rat out David. Hey Saul, we know where David is. Come get him. These are his own kinsmen. This is its own tribe. I can't imagine David's internal struggles. Lord, it makes no sense. I'm a prayerful man. I'm trusting you in faith. You've anointed me to be the king. I went out and fought the giant. I was terrified and I trusted you. I went out with Saul's armies to great victories. Now I'm being betrayed by Saul. I'm being betrayed by my own people. I'm being betrayed by the city of Kilah. Betrayed by the everyone who seems to be at one time to be my friend. And I'm still helping people. I'm praying to you every day. Difficult things keep happening. Nothing is changing. It doesn't make any sense. We felt like that too, haven't we? You don't have to, to do something wrong for something bad to happen in life. You don't have to be, to be in sin to have something go wrong in your life. And you might feel the same way. What is going on? Lord, I'm your child. I'm trying to serve you. What David learned, and I think what we learned from this, is really it's this simple. God is God. We are not God. We cannot see what he's doing. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it hurts. But God has a plan And we have to trust his character, trust his love, his goodness, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his loving kindness. We have to trust him. So we can see now in retrospect, and usually we see God's providence much better looking back in life, don't we? 
than looking, we can't see it looking forward really at all. But looking back at David, we see that as a type of Christ, that all David's suffering highlighted the suffering that Christ would endure. David was betrayed. Christ was betrayed. David came to an ungrateful people whom he saved. Christ came to an ungrateful people whom he saved. David seems to have no place at present to lay his head. Christ came to earth and had no place to lay his head. God was using David's experiences on the earth for a purpose he could not imagine. And it pointed to the suffering of his son, the coming king, who would be born in David's hometown 1,000 years later. And the church today is able to see these connections, and we rejoice. We praise God for David's faithfulness. We praise God that God put him through those sufferings because we have the Psalms because of them. And they're such precious prayers to us when we suffer through difficulties. Those of you who have been through difficult times, and I've come to visit you, I almost always just go to the Psalms. I don't have any words. But the Psalms have words for you. The Scriptures have words for you. We see David's hope is in God alone to deliver him. Even in the worst suffering of his life, he wrote Psalm 22. And that's the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a wonderful tapestry is God's providence. So we, I believe, when we suffer, need to learn the same lesson as David's learning. In the midst of suffering, we lean into God and his promises and we trust him. It's difficult, and I'm not making light of anyone's pain. But this is the truth. We lean into God. We trust Him. And we pray. Mary Kay and I went to Biltmore uh, about a month ago. And we walked through this one particular room in this gigantic house. And they had these these monstrous tapestries um, hanging from the wall. Four really big ones, I believe. Um, maybe 10 feet across and 20 feet long, just hanging. There were these beautiful pictures, all Bible stories. They said it took years because of their size and the detail. It took years to weave the tapestry, you know, to put it together. And it's done one thread at a time. And the, the weavers putting the threads on certainly can't have any idea what the, the finished product will look like. But the master weaver, he knows that each thread must be a certain shade of color and the shade must blend into another shade. And at the end, of course, it's what you see. But in the middle, the million threads going on one at a time must feel very tedious. Similarly, God uses all the events of our lives, all the threads of our own lives to accomplish something beautiful that we cannot really see until the redemptive history of the world is complete. We don't know the impact of our decisions in our lives in the next generation or even the next generation. And you don't know how much the previous generations have impacted you in your own life today. So we trust God. David's trusting, he's running, he's suffering, he's being betrayed. Why? 
Ultimately, because that was part of God's plan. It didn't mean that God did not care for David, though, because God loves David. So that's the transition. This isn't just uh, an impersonal providence that just stands over the people of God and makes things happen because he has a plan. He loves his children. And look what he does to care for David. In verse 15, 15 through 18, we see that Jonathan, Saul's own son, comes to David. This is David's best friend. He sent Jonathan, God sent Jonathan, to encourage David's soul. This isn't a throwaway part of the narrative. This is critical to understand. David prayed to God. He trusted God. He felt betrayed and lonely. And God had compassion on his servant David and sent Jonathan It says to strengthen his hand in verse 16. To strengthen his hand. How? Well, he strengthens his hand in God. He reminds David of God's power and his protection, i.e., my dad's not going to find you. You're safe. God will take care of you. And he reminds him of God's promises. You will be king over Israel. God has promised this. The most important comfort that anyone could ever give, Jonathan gave, which is his presence and God's word. He reminded David of God's character and of his word. This is really the only comfort that we can give anybody. If you want to encourage somebody, go be with them, listen to them, and then comfort them with the word of God. Don't be ashamed to to read the Bible to them, to encourage them with God's promises and his character and pray with them. It's the only encouragement that we have to give is Jesus Christ. God knows us best. He knows how we're wired because he made us. He knows our circumstances. He knows that the scriptures, by means of the Holy Spirit, are our comfort. So if you're going to comfort somebody, pray and bring them the truth of God. Bring them Jesus. So we pray often. We trust God and his providence. And we remember that he loves us and he cares for us. This brings us to a time of the Lord's Supper. 